Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. The Bowery Boys, Episode 53. The Meatpacking District. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg. Tom is away on vacation, and we'll be missing our little trip here to one of the more unusual areas of Manhattan that bluntly named Meatpacking District. This is the area of the west side sandwiched between Chelsea and the West Village, 20 square blocks between 15th Street and Horatio Street, and then everything west of Hudson Street. Although this is considered part of the West Village, it has a completely different look and energy than anything to its south. Most of the buildings in this area are no more than three or four floors high, with many only two stories. It's still mostly cobblestone streets, some at awkward diagonals due to the West Village's rebellion to the grid system, and it has elevated subway tracks running through it and up into West Chelsea that haven't been in service for over 28 years. And up until a couple years ago, it was a very, let's say, aromatic place to walk through. So given this history, its status today is a completely wild, unexpected twist. Today, it's this trendy neighborhood lined with designer clothes shops, hot clubs, and expensive restaurants. But despite the best efforts of real estate agents, this name, the Meatpacking District, has stuck. And they tried to voice this acronym, MEPA. M-E-P-A on us, but it ain't working. Anyway, the neighborhood is also often referred to at times as Gansevoort Market. Both these names are a constant reminder to its past. This area has served as one of the market centers of New York City since the late 19th century. But even before then, what we call the Meatpacking District today has served some more unique purposes. Our first clue comes from the name of one of the Meatpacking District's main streets, Gansevoort Street. That street's named for a colonel in the Revolutionary War by the name of Peter Gansevoort. He was part of the militia up in Albany, New York, when the war started, leading soldiers into some decisive northern campaigns, participating in the invasion of Canada in 1775, considered one of the very first assaults by collected American colonial forces, and he helped defend the fortress at Fort Stanwix in today's Rome, New York. Gansevoort was actually in Stanwix when America declared its independence in July of 1776. So what does he have to do with New York City? Well, the 19th century brought fears of another British attack, unease that would eventually lead to the War of 1812, a war fought on water as much as on land. New Yorkers, who had, of course, sat out the entire Revolutionary War as property of the British, were in no mood to do that again. So they built up new fortresses all through New York Harbor, Castle William on Governor's Island, Castle Clinton and Battery Park, which, by the way, was named for the topic of our last podcast, DeWitt Clinton, Fort Wood on Bedloe's Island, which was eventually filled in and became the base of the Statue of Liberty. Well, they decided to build another fort in 1812. This one would be named after Peter and called Fort Gansevoort. 
at precisely where Gansevoort Street is today, you know, obviously near the water. Before then, this land had, like most of the West Village, been farmland that had been allotted to the English and then divvied up and sold to wealthy land speculators. As the British never attacked New York during the War of 1812, the fort sat protecting the countryside from essentially nothing. It was referred to as the White Fort, as it was completely whitewashed and stood for another 40 years until it was demolished in the early 1850s. Gansevoort's nephew, the writer Herman Melville, worked for 20 years on the docks at the end of Gansevoort Street as a customs inspector, many years after he wrote his famous novels. And fast forward from that, a little over 100 years later, Gansevoort and Melville's ancestor, the electronic music star Moby, presumably has his music played as background music in most of the stores and restaurants that fill up the meatpacking district today. Now, that lucky landowner who had bought up all that land beneath Fort Gansevoort and the surrounding area? No surprise, none other than our old friend John Jacob Astor. Among the acres of land he bought up in anticipation of the city's growth was the entire area comprising the meatpacking district. Most of the lands would remain in the family's hands for decades. In these early days, they built up row houses up and down the streets. Remarkably, there are still a couple buildings still standing from this period of time in that neighborhood. Why did this area in particular develop as a marketplace? The key event occurred in 1851 when the freight-only depot of the Hudson River Railroad opened at Gansevoort and West Street, or basically today's Westside Highway. That, paired with freighters and boats already using the nearby docks, convinced produce and other food sellers downtown to migrate up to this area. Soon the Gansevoort area became a chaotic mess of vendors selling all manner of perishables as they unloaded from the water's edge. This unofficial and unregulated market took over the neighborhood, making the Astor family and hundreds others pretty rich. Eventually the city got involved and in 1884 the Gansevoort market, sorry the official Gansevoort market, opened in the exact same spot where the former Fort Gansevoort once stood. Today you can go to the meatpacking district and buy such trendy perishables as expensive designer clothes and iPods, but the first items that were sold here in this area in these open-air markets were fruits and vegetables. It was a mix of different styles, from vendors who bought right off the trains and turned around and sold them to people from carts, to farmers who came to the city a couple times a week with their own farm-grown produce. There were clearly grocers throughout the city by this time, but keep in mind these were the heady days of primitive refrigeration, and the Gansevoort market was probably the best place for normal New Yorkers to buy their essentials. As the number of vendors increased, selling a wider number of products, the city built a second market in 1889 called the West Washington Market, and that was just about a block away. This would primarily be for sellers of poultry and meat who were taking space away from the produce sellers. This new building would soon be equipped with more modern advances in refrigeration. In fact, by the turn of the century, modern refrigeration techniques, i.e. basically ones not simply using gigantic blocks of ice, would first be debuted in the meatpacking warehouses in Chicago, and the New York markets at West Washington would get them shortly afterwards. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. 
but there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Naturally, a neighborhood experiencing this flux of thousands of tons of food and thousands of people who would be selling and eating it is going to change in some really unusual ways. Most notably around the time, a remarkable phenomenon was happening with these old row houses that is kind of the opposite of anything happening in New York today. Many of the top floors of these row houses would actually be removed, so they were actually taking away apartment spaces, turning five-story buildings into two-story warehouses, and then outfitting those with these distinctive black awnings to block the sun from shining down onto the perishables contained in the bins below. Although nobody's selling anything out of the bins on the sidewalk today, most of the buildings of the meatpacking district still have these corrugated awnings, distinguishing the neighborhood from the rest of the city. The second major facelift for the neighborhood came when the ground-level railroad became the elevated train. Up to this time, the west side was an absolute nightmare of loading docks and freight trains and impossible congestion. An elevated train line would theoretically relieve that. So work began in 1924, and 10 years later, what would then be known as the High Line, or that's what we call it today, would be completed. And yes, getting the trains off the street helped with traffic and pollution. It also helped hasten the neighborhood's later decline as it created these darkened streets around a dock area that wasn't getting any safer either. In the 20th century, the two markets would operate side to side. We'd be joined by other industries like twine and paint manufacturers, even the Nabisco Biscuit Company. Say that five times fast. The Nabisco Biscuit Company had a plant here as well. The produce market, of course, was still totally chaotic. Here's a quote from an article from a 1939 WPA guide, which sort of paints the scene for you. Quote, activities began at 4 a.m., Farmers in overalls and mud-caked shoes stand in trucks, shouting their wares. Commission merchants, pushcart vendors, and restaurant buyers trudge warily from one stand to another, digging arms into baskets of fruits or vegetables to ascertain quality. Hungry derelicts wander about in hopes of picking up a stray vegetable dropped from some truck, while patient nuns wait to receive leftover unsaleable goods for distribution amongst the destitute." Unquote. So that's how it was going in the produce world, but the future of this neighborhood was meat. Produce vendors just couldn't turn the same sort of profit as the meatpacking houses, and so when the poultry sellers moved out to Queens in the 1940s, the meat industry essentially took over. The Gansevoort Produce Market became Gansevoort Market Meat Center in 1950, while the meat seller's old home, the West Washington Market, was given to the Department of Sanitation to become the Gansevoort Garbage Terminal, which, at its waterfront, featured what was affectionately known by everyone as the Gansevoort Destructor Plant, with these massive spewing smokestacks, which made everything just look disgusting. 
By the 1960s, the area was entirely given over to meat and garbage. So in that context, imagine what must have happened to the neighborhood as it entered the depressed 1970s and 1980s. Yes, now the fun begins. While they were busy packing up meat products during the day, the human cattle came out at night. The meatpacking district of the 70s and 80s hosted a sleazy and delectable mix of bars and clubs catering to the city's underbelly. Or to use a quote from um, something I read in the Soho Journal, which proclaimed, By the 1970s, the neighborhood developed an alter ego. Perhaps it was the visceral karma of slapping and hanging meat all day? Or maybe it was just the remoteness of the locale. But the meatpacking district became a niche for many of New York's underground subcultures. In particular, meatpacking was home to the city's gay leather scene, establishments with such names as the Mineshaft, the Manhole, Cell Block 28, and the Lure. By the way, be sure to check out the Al Pacino movie Cruisin' if you really want a kind of like ridiculous look into this particular scene. The streets themselves would soon become filled with drug dealers and prostitutes walking the meat-soaked cobblestones all hours of the morning. As if that wasn't outrageous enough, the area was especially known as a neighborhood for transgendered prostitutes. You know, it's New York. We've got specialization happening all over the city. But as with many neighborhoods in New York that once belonged to more, shall we say, more segmented communities, things started catching on. Back in the 1920s, there was this beloved old diner called the R&L Restaurant, which was this greasy spoon that catered to the workers in the neighborhood. By 1985, this relic was repurposed as the beloved restaurant Florent, a curious oasis of great cuisine that for a while was considered a sort of pioneer of the neighborhood. In 1991, a dank nightclub called Mother opened nearby, bringing to this district one of New York nightlife's most creative and celebrated weekly parties, which they threw every week for years, called Jackie 60. One year later, a rather sleazy dive bar by the name of Hogs and Heifers opened. This is a kind of place where they light the bar on fire, you stand up, you take off your bra, and you throw it into this now legendary mass of bras that they're collecting. I believe back in its heyday, even Julia Roberts showed up and threw her bra onto the pile. So yes, even the trashy straight people were getting into the spirit. Florent and Jackie 60 were harbingers for what would then happen next. As rents skyrocketed, many meatpacking companies who had been there for decades could no longer even afford their spaces, and they all moved away. Seen as edgy and with many, all these huge spaces now available, by the mid-90s, the meatpacking district, with its distinctive rough-hewn look, attracted all of these high-end restaurateurs and club owners, and they all began moving in. In fact, by the time Samantha on Sex and the City moved here on the TV series in the year 2000, the flood of designers and art galleries and boutiques had already begun in earnest. This sudden rush of the hip and cool might have completely taken its toll in the neighborhood had it not been officially designated an historic district in 2003. It's still going through some really tremendous changes, though, as the old guard represented by the meatpacking warehouses make way for the kind of community that nobody even 25 years ago would have possibly imagined the meatpacking district today, you know, totally tears people. It's very controversial. A lot of people really love going there. A lot of people think it's ruined. All I have to say is this. The current high-end rendition of the meatpacking district isn't exactly your slice of beef, as they say. Well, considering it's past, just sit back. I'm sure it's going to be something else within a few years. 
So thank you for sitting and listening to this brief history of one of New York's more enigmatic neighborhoods. I'd like to give a special thanks to the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, some of whose materials that they actually used to help get the Meatpacking District designated as a landmark I used as research for this podcast. And they have a fantastic walking tour, a very, very detailed walking tour of the neighborhood, which I'll post a link on at the blog that I recommend that you do. It really goes almost building by building. And because it was done a few years ago, some of those buildings are no longer there, but it's fun to see what was there. I did mention the blog. That's BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I'll have some pictures uh, relating to today's show and stories that are tangentially about today's show and all other good stuff. So please check that out. Tom will be back with this next week. So thank you for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com.